become. We step into a place, and look, I'm not talking about just Christians, I'm talking about the community. We step into a place of, judge, of the judge and condemn all, all of a person's life when they're convicted of a sexual sin. Curiously, we are not nearly so quick to condemn if it is a financial or corporate sin that they're convicted of. We don't wipe the rest of their life away, we just say. Don't get me wrong. What the courts have convicted George Pell and other clergy and leaders of is appalling and deserves the full weight of the law. But how ugly is the vitriol that is slapped or poured over them and their institution without recognition of many good and faithful people who have served in the same institution? We seem no longer to be able to separate a person from their life's work. Should we? I don't know. Who would now want to own a painting by the renowned portraitist Rolf Harris? Will you go to see a Gavin Spacey film? Or pay for a plate of Jeffrey Rush, who incidentally hasn't been found guilty of anything yet? Will everyone stop listening to Michael Batson's songs? Our response in the past was different. Paul Gauguin, the famous French painter, abandoned his family, went to Tahiti, and cohabited very publicly with young, very nubile island women. It was probably pedophilia. But we still happily pay millions for his works and go to see his works at exhibitions. Many other famous painters, composers, and writers had large moral lapses in their lives, but people at the time and since were willing to ignore them. Are we more moral now? Or has not enough time passed to cloak their moral lapses with a veil of ignorance? Or has the media given us too much information? Or does it just make us feel more righteous to be able to judge public <coughs> figures and wipe away all of their achievements because they've failed morally in some way? What is morality? A definition of it says, amongst many other things, that it's concerned with conduct or principles that are right, ethical, truthful, founded on fundamental principles. And who says they're right? How do we develop our moral compass? I'm just throwing ideas out, right? How do we develop it? For all of us, our upbringing, be it good or bad, is the seedbed out of which many of our moral views grow. This is developed by our parents, our experiences, probably our schooling, and certainly our culture. That may be secular culture or Christian culture. There are moral attitudes, actions, beliefs that can vary widely from one culture to another. So possession of goods, for example, can be viewed very differently in many tribal situations. And therefore it's not theft for me to take that of yours because what's yours is mine so different from our Western view. Sexual standards, the age of sexual maturity, polygamy. Some societies are very matriarchal, much more so than ours. So there's all sorts of layers there. And people of faith add many more layers to their moral code. We, as Jews and Christians, believe that God has revealed to us moral standards that are outside our cultural history. They are eternal and unchanging, and I believe that. I think that's vitally important to us. How could we don't often don't handle those truths well? If you think back over Western civilization, the Christian West, you come across many uncomfortable things that have been based on what was claimed to be a biblical foundation. We claim things we believe are biblical. They need to. For example, the Crusaders. 
for about three centuries, set off time and time again to rescue the Holy Land from the infidels, the Muslim hordes who happened to live in the Middle East. Along the way, they made a practice of slaughtering Jews because they had killed Jesus, and they conveniently ignored the fact that Jesus was Jewish. They enacted hideous crimes and spent vast amounts of stolen money to recover for God, whether he wanted it or not, the Holy Land and any bits of the true cross or vials of Mary's breast milk that charlatans were willing to sell to them. It's true. <laughs> Slavery. Stealing people from Africa was the basis of wealth for the Christian British Empire and the USA for centuries, and they could defend it with biblical verses. We had slavery here in Queensland with Islanders, the Kanakas, brought to work in the cane fields. It was slavery. To counterbalance this, let it be said that it was Bible-believing people who brought about the end of slavery. And that's true too. But it was supported for centuries by Bible-believing Christians. Apartheid in South Africa, a government initiative that divided people on the basis of colour, white, black and coloured causing them to live, work and travel separately and all sorts of other things. This was formulated under a very strictly religious reformed theology government. And again, they had scripture verse to support it. And America, the land of the free, had wicked deliberate segregation until the 60s. Keeping the Sabbath in a joyless and repressive way was the norm for centuries for many Christians. The horrible Protestant Catholic divide that was present in my childhood, and for some of you, you just couldn't, as a Protestant, marry a Catholic, or your family would never speak to you again. They were all biblically supported things that we did. That's why I always wince when I hear Christians say that moral certitude is easy because it's in the Bible. To take one or two verses and base a moral belief structure on them is wrong. We have to go back to the heart of the word, check our motives, and as we have been reminded time and time again lately, check out the plumb line of loving God and loving our neighbour. There's the plumb line. And let's not fool ourselves that the answers will all be cut and dried. I love the way in which Barry and Kevin spoke about the recent vexed question of the Christian response to same-sex marriage. I found that very helpful, the way they spoke. Another example, and this may people, make people uncomfortable and I don't wish to, but let's be honest, divorce. Something that is outlined clearly in the Bible, Jesus did not speak about homosexuality or abortion, but he did address divorce. That's uncomfortable making. Check, check Matthew 19, 3-9 to check what he said. Down through the centuries, the church held firm to its opposition on divorce, except for Henry VIII. He just changed a few things, but on the whole, the church was very opposed to divorce. My mother's parents were divorced in the 1930s, and so scandalous was divorce at that stage that I believe she, a child at the time, carried shame for that event throughout the rest of her life. In the 1950s, in our primary school, in my primary school, of about 300 students, I only knew of one family that was divorced. In the 70s, the federal government radically changed the secular divorce laws 
and there were many good and humane reasons for this, and the rest is history. Often, classes at school now will have a third to a half of the students from single parent or blended families. That's the size of the change. And the church, including Pentecostal churches like ours, held out against this for a while. In some, it was still not permitted for divorced people to take communion, and certainly not to be in ministry. That has shifted radically. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing or that I feel judgmental about divorced people, but our Christian moral stance has changed. Biblical stance, but it's changed. So be careful of your high moral ground, your biblical ground, because it may well shift in the next 20 to 30 years. I won't be able to see it, but you will. <laughs> I suspect that many people do not make room, and this just goes back to my feelings that we didn't talk about things. They don't make room to talk with others about their views on moral and ethical issues. It's just not part of our culture. I have made a practice of sitting with my adult children in the last few years, because I don't have anybody else to talk with, so I sit them down and ask them about their views on homosexuality, same-sex marriage, the Me Too movement, the community response to child abuse, whether we should reject a person's artistic work because of their personal life. And we are willing to differ and to respect one another. Could I suggest that as Christians, we owe it to our children to have informed discussion in our homes, at the very least. It isn't hard. Do it around the dining table. Just pose the question. And they don't all have to be huge and ethical and biblical. I've had a couple that have been very significant that I've asked. I remember my son, whose dad died when he was 18, coming to me a couple of years later and saying, Mum, how will I know I'm a grown-up? I always thought Dad would just put his arms around me and say, Son, you're a man. How am I going to know? I used that question to open up discussions with men I talked with, just casually at morning tea, with groups of women friends, with my family. And it was amazing what it brought out and how it challenged people on that inner level where it matters. I remember my darling Ellie, who's not at all a new head, but she said she knew she was a grown-up when she had to buy a proper handbag. I <laughs> Another time, I was vexed by the sense that is given in advertising, etc., that we deserve fun all the time. I'm not sure that I agree, I don't really know what fun is. I'm not very good at fun. So I asked my friends for their response. And again, it was very interesting, and you can go down all sorts of channels. So that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. <coughs> Throw a question out and see what people say. It can be quite casual, but meaningful. And for our children growing up in a world that is counter to their Christian upbringing, it is helpful and freeing, I think to be released to talk about tricky issues in a safe and accepting place and to discover that not everyone thinks the same way. Don't be afraid of conflicting views. <clears throat> Trust God and be willing to not have all the answers. We need to model also, we need to model open discussion with our children. Watch our language. Less of the, this is right and true and only an idiot would believe that and more on the, 
I think I understand what you're saying, but I would probably see it this way. See yourself beside them, not at them. Or as a Christian, I would try and follow this way of acting, but I respect respect your right to think and do differently. It's very releasing and very necessary. And each of us has to come to our own place of understanding. For all of our children too, there are new moralities at work. Green and ecological morality morality is a big issue in our society. What we consume, where we source our energy, the use of plastics, non-renewable fuels, the food we eat, the ethics of manufacturing. Please don't sit on your high horse and declare that all that climate change green stuff is rubbish. It's not rubbish, and particularly to the generation growing up now. What does it matter to me? Very much. We are going to live, they are going to live, with the unimaginable consequences of thoughtful, thoughtless, maybe ignorant wastefulness. And isn't one of the first obligations given to mankind by God to husband and care for the earth, to be good stewards? There are so many moral issues, abortion, euthanasia, de facto relationships, and the answers are often not to be found by just sticking our finger on a verse and declaring, thus saith the Lord. How do we, while holding a Christian viewpoint, love the world around us? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And deliberately. Cheerfully, but deliberately. Because it won't happen otherwise. One of the consequences of clinging to a biblical stance on an issue while not finding ways to love and accept those who do not have our moral stance is that we can easily fall into self-righteousness. God is right, I believe in him, so all those people are wrong, and I will just keep telling them, or quietly sit in judgment on them. Self-righteousness can be vile. Think of anti-abortionists who are so right that they have been known in the States to shoot people at abortion clinics. It is intriguing that Christians can be so critical, so judgmental of non-Christians because they sin. Well, surely it's natural for sinners to sin. I mean, why do we do that? Why do we get so uptight about it? It's natural. It was for us before we were saved. So often, self-righteousness is tied into the feeling that I keep the law better than others, that my moral standards are higher than yours. I think that quite often, seeing this lately, the psalmists have lengthy passages where they remind God of how well they have behaved and kept the law, and that he must therefore get busy about smiting their enemies. You know, notice that I just think it's really weird. I've found it quite difficult to read some of the psalms lately because self-righteous, whatever. (laughs) Interesting, too, that it is well known in prisons that often there is a hierarchy of wickedness. And they all, be they thief or murderer, feel superior to, better than the child molesters. The human heart is very easily deceived. So, there's just some thoughts to get you thinking on moral issues. And it's all right to do it. It's not unchristian to ask questions. Any response to that? Can you hear what I'm saying? Yeah? All right. So let's do some talking about New Testament biblical righteousness. 
Chunks here. Two Bibles. Two Bibles. <laughs> I don't do it on my phone. So, um, righteousness or righteous are very common things in the Bible. And what does it mean? <coughs> well, it can mean having opinions and beliefs that are right, correct, and true. And not just opinions, but also doing things that are right. Now, many people in the world would argue about what is right. In our country, being right for many people now simply means doing what suits them, what they want to do. Christians don't have that option, really. Usually people will say, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, then it's okay. But religious people, Jews, Muslims and Christians say, no, there are standards, rules, right behaviours that please God. That usually makes non-spiritual people pretty mad. How dare you tell me what's right? How do you know? Of course, we only know because God has revealed them through the writings of the Bible and through Jesus, um, over the writings over many, many years, and then as Jesus who came directly to tell us what's right. It's interesting to see how much weight God gives to these ideas in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word righteous or righteousness occurs just over 400 times, while in the New Testament it occurs only 140 times. The other word that's tied up with this is faith. And it's found only two times in the Old Testament and 240 times in the New Testament. Why? Well, God is holy and perfect, so nothing that is not perfect can come near him. Human beings are not perfect. Even the best of us has to hear the truth that God looks on our righteous acts and thoughts as if they were dirty rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, For you have all become as one who is unclean, that is, ceremonially, such as a leper, and all our righteousness, our best deeds of rightness and justice, are as filthy rags or a polluted garment. That's Old Testament. God doesn't change. But God wanted to restore friendship with us, so he started to reveal himself to a group of people we now call the Jews. Through Moses, Abraham, the prophets, he kept saying to them, be righteous people, do what pleases me, and I will be able to be your friend, and I will be able to bless you as I want to. Now, they didn't know how to be righteous, so he gave them the rules and the guidelines to follow, including the Ten Commandments. And the people who loved God tried to do the right thing. They did not live by faith. That is, just believing and listening to God in their hearts. They tried to be righteous people by doing things. Not eating this, sacrificing that, doing nothing on the Sabbath, rituals, dress codes, praying at set times. And there are still many people worldwide, Christians included, who try to please God this way. They try to please God, but they're doing it that way. It was an attempt to please God by keeping rules, but all the while God wanted people who were in relationship with him, trusting, obedient children, following his ways because they love him. Can you see why in the Old Testament righteousness is mentioned so often and faith so little? It's interesting to think about Abraham because his life puts the two words together, righteousness and faith. That's where faith is mentioned. Abraham, the father of all the Jewish nation, lived a long time. He did many good things, and he did quite a few wrong and stupid things. 
but he is remembered and honoured in scripture and in Jewish history and in our history because there were times when he acted in faith. He obeyed God even though he could see no reason for it. He was very old by the time we get to this bit in Romans 4 is talking all about it and in towards the end of it. So it's talked about how Abraham and Sarah were both extremely ancient and couldn't have children, and then the angel came and told them they were going to have children. And Abraham, verse 20 of Romans 4, it says, And yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, as for faith, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith equaled righteousness, because he believed in God and acted on it. Jane, can you come out here, please? Uh, I've chosen Jane because we know Jane and we love her and we know what a godly woman she is. She is. You are, Jane. You are. You are generous and kind and thoughtful and, and persistent and patient and just so many, many things. Yes, she is, Paul. Um, so... <laughs> now, none of us likes to admit we're sinners, that we aren't perfect. We would rather try to be good, and then we can feel proud and self-righteous. But Romans 2, 3, 3.23 reminds us that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thank God that Jesus came to set us free from that trap. So... Jamie lives a good life, but she possibly did before she was saved, I didn't know that, but probably wasn't quite as good as it is now, but she lives a good life. But we have to know that when God looks on Jamie, this is what he sees. He doesn't see her looking very smart in her own jacket. He sees this. You've got spots on you, Jane, and you're falling to pieces, and, and that's what he would have to see. Without the grace of God, that's what he has to see. This is, as, as Fran talked about last week, our soul life, our um, sin nature, right? That, that's what we wear. Now, we may try and walk through life with a flung back and we walk with pride and arrogance and, <laughs> and we're Or we may be deeply ashamed and we spend our time going, oh, God, clean this bit up. Oh, there's another bit over here, all right? That's what oh, we missed a bit. This is my painting bag, this one. So stay there, Jamie, don't go away. So we are told that God did something for us at this place. Before, before Jesus, we could only keep on sinning and deserve punishment. We could never be righteous enough. But Jesus, who was perfect, took all our sin into his own body and was punished in his place. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our part, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So what happens when we are saved is that as God looks on us, we say, Father, I can't do this without you. I can't do it. I believe Jesus. I believe his, his life and his blood has set me free. We come under the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't take this away. But when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so it's an exchange. It's what theologians call imputed righteousness. We didn't deserve it. We never can deserve it. We don't have to beg for it, but it is given to us. And it covers, it covers our soul nature. Now, as Fran said last week, that doesn't mean we don't then need to deal with things. So now and then we will open the book and go, oh, it's still there. And, and often we will then try and scrub it clean. Or we'll cuddle things around so we'll just pretend that it isn't so. But sanctification is the process of us going, oh Lord, look, there it is again. I thought we dealt with pride. I thought we dealt with vanity. I thought I dealt with my bad mouth. I haven't. I repent. I ask you, I receive your forgiveness. I don't have to ask it because I've already been forgiven. I receive your forgiveness. God, and you. And you get on with life. And God will bring things along to help you work on that spot. If it's impatience, He will bring people along where you have the choice time and time again to be patient or impatient. And if you listen to His voice, increasingly, you will understand that your response is to let him change you. So that under this perfect righteousness of Christ, our, our own soul nature is slowly being sanctified, cleaned up. It's never going to be sparkling clean, but it's God's business to do it, and you can't do it, and I can't do it. But this is what he sees when he looks at them all the time. He sees us like that. Do you understand what I'm trying to say about this exchange? That's a remarkable thing that happens at salvation. A remarkable thing. And we need to have a picture of it in our head. And when the voice says, you've done it again, you say, yes, I have. Lord, I need your help. That's what we repent about. I've done it again. You don't have to felt yourself up about it. That's your sin nature. But you've been given the nature of Christ. You are in Christ. You know what the song, <laughs> that song I thought was just fantastic, flawless, you know, and you could see it being taken away, and that's how God sees us. Thank you, Jane. That's how I see you too, thank you. <laughs> you. So instead of trying to please God by obeying lots of rules, we are told to live by faith in what Jesus has done for us. And that's why the New Testament is full of instructions about faith. It's a new and different way of living. God still wants us to be a righteous people because he hasn't changed. Jesus has said that nothing from the Old Testament happens to be got rid of. Indeed, we are to do better than the best of the Jews have done, but we are to do it by faith. Faith in him, faith in what he's done, and faith that he will change us if we ask him. I love the bit the New Testament says you don't have because you don't ask. How many things do we not have in our life because we just don't ask? This means we have to keep trusting God to lead us, for God to change us, for God to correct us, rather than trying to work it out ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. My seeking for righteousness is that that God will be at work on that soul person, that messy soul person. Well, I'm still 
often protected by the righteousness of Christ. God will make us righteous from the inside out as we trust him and live by faith, but we still have a role to play. We don't have to struggle to please God. That's impossible. But it pleases him when by faith we desire to grow in righteousness. Can you hear the difference there? I'm not trying to please God, but if I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness, then that pleases him. Hunger and thirst, to me, talk about doing things every day. It's not just the now and then, it's a, a lifestyle. And there are three things the New Testament says we are to do in respect of righteousness. Ephesians 4, 24, Amplified says... And put on the new nature, the regenerate self, created in God's image, in true righteousness and holiness. In other versions, it makes it sound even more like putting on a robe. But we are to put on the robe of righteousness that Jesus has won for it. We are to put on right behaviour. It is our responsibility by faith to put on, to dress ourselves in right actions, right thoughts, right beliefs, right behaviours. And we're not fooling ourselves, we are just deliberately doing it. If you look at the rest of that chapter, it talks about the sort of things that are not righteous. And so we are to speak the truth. Our anger should lead to healing, not to harm. We don't steal things. And that's things, people's ideas, their reputation by gossip. We don't steal by cheating. We put on righteousness. Our language should be life-giving. This is what it says in that Ephesians chapter. This is what non-godly people are doing. It should be free from swearing. It should be positive, building people up, not bitter and resentful. Put on the language of promise. Be kind. Be sweet-tempered. Be tender. Be forgiving. Remember, this is not to win God's approval. Instead, it is training us to think and act in a truly righteous way. We are learning to take on the family resemblance, and we're doing it by faith. And when we fail, as I said, we clearly look at the sin. We call it what it is. We repent, ask, but we receive forgiveness, and then we call on the Holy Spirit to change us. We are putting on righteousness, dressing ourselves in Jesus' lifestyle every day. And when we fail, we repent and the Holy Spirit can keep on changing and sanctifying us. He actually can't change us until we recognise it. So it's a good thing to be convicted. Also, we are told in John 1 John 3, just reading to you that, I'm using the Bible. John 3, verse 7. Let no one deceive and lead you astray. He who practices righteousness, who is upright, conforming to the divine will in purpose, thought, and action, living a consistently conscientious life, is righteous, even as he, Jesus, is righteous. So now it's practice righteousness. So we put it on. We practice it. 
we have been given the righteousness of Jesus like a robe, so we don't need to lose heart when we fail or do or think unrighteous things because we are covered with his righteousness. But we need to practice thinking and acting in a righteous way so that it becomes our new and real nature. So that messy thing underneath increasingly gets cleaned up. The verses on either side of this talk about people who might claim to be Christians, but they practice sin. They do it often. They don't seem to care. Maybe they simply think that God will keep on forgiving them. But it is clear from these verses that we must make sure that we practice being righteous because it shows the world who we belong to. There are many things in life we need to practice until we can do them without thinking. Learning a musical instrument, driving a car, reading. Amazed that I don't remember learning to read. It is so significant in my life. And I don't remember it. I just do it. Using a sewing machine, you know, lots of skills we learn by practice. We make mistakes at the start, we practice and practice and practice until it becomes second nature. How often do you get in the car and drive and when you get to the other end you can't even remember doing it? It's just become natural to you. It's a bit scary really, isn't it? Other things about, the other thing about practicing something is that you get better and better at it until you are able to recognize that when you haven't done it as well or as you should have. I'd say it with sewing, you know, it's so right, I've happened. Then you do a bit of, oh dear, that's messy. I really need to unpick that and go back because I know enough to know when I haven't done it right. Gradually, as we practice righteousness, we begin to recognize inside us that we're doing or thinking something that doesn't fit with our new nature, something that would disappoint or displease God. I know telling untruths has got harder and harder in my life because a little bit of a lie just to keep things comfortable and I am convicted by it because I have practiced living in the truth for so long that a small thing becomes obvious to me. And just as a great singer or musician who is at the top of their profession still has to practice daily, so do we. There is never a time when we can take a holiday from living right thinking in a godly way, acting in a way to please God. No holidays. So, put on righteousness as a robe. Practice righteousness. And the third instruction is that we are to pursue righteousness or aim for it or desire it. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, says, But as for you, O man of God, or woman of God, Flee from all these things, aim at and pursue righteousness, that is, right standing with God and true goodness, godliness, which is the loving fear of God and Christ-likeness, faith, love, steadfastness, patience, and gentleheartedness. Pursue righteousness. These, the verses before this talked about ungodly people who cause strife and arguments and who love money too much and, and pursue it to their detriment. But we are to chase after righteousness. We are to pursue it. Think of a person hunting a wild animal, a shy animal. They pursue it. They use all their skill and their ability and attention to try and capture or kill this creature. So how do we pursue righteousness? By wanting to be like Jesus, the righteous one. He is completely righteous. 
So we need to long to be righteous too. Ask the Holy Spirit to keep teaching us. Read your Bible. Put what you read into practice. Keep your heart soft. Be quick to repent. Humble when corrected. There are many kingdom principles we need to learn to live by. And Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. For example, I mean, I love kingdom principles. It's probably the one thing that's driven my whole Christian life. But so there are all sorts of principles. I also love this little verse because it really gets me, which says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Very simple. Quite a challenge. Don't go to bed with unresolved anger. Sort it out. Even if it takes till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, sort it out. Because you won't the next minute. When you wake up, there'll just be a wall starting to be built between you. Be generous. Don't seek to take revenge. Be kind to those who treat you badly. Forgive over and over again. Watch out for ugly emotions in your heart, such as bitter anger and lust, and call them out for what they are. Don't be so ashamed of them that you cover over. God still might be there. Don't do that. Call them out. Call them what they are and repent. Bring them into the light, and they cease to have their hold on you. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to be willing to pursue, to chase after the righteous things of God. So put it on as a cloak. Practice it. Get good at it. And pursue it. Seek it. Long for it. So we are now people who live in the time of faith. On faith we believe. And just as with Abraham, God sees us as righteous in Christ. And we are free from the lies of the devil who will try and say that we're sinners. Catch yourself out. If you ever say again, I'm a terrible sinner. Stop. You are not. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. You may sin. Your sin nature may rear its little head, but you are not a sinner. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that's how God sees you. So for goodness sake, choose to see yourself that way. Practice it. Practice it. I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. At the point of salvation, we were clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, but we have a lifetime here and learning what it's like to be holy and righteous. Every day as we walk through life, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we are to be conscious and thankful for the robe of righteousness. We are to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to think and act righteously. We need to practice righteous living till it becomes part of our new nature. So you identify when something's not right. And we are to be people who keep on pursuing, chasing after righteousness. Do Be willing to do whatever is necessary for us to become like Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. Isn't it wonderfully freeing? Just wonderful. God, we thank you that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus will work on the cross. 
has made it possible for our Father to look upon us. He's always loved us, but he can look upon us and we can draw near to him. He can draw near to us because there is nothing between us. The veil has been torn and we can enter into that holy place because of the righteousness of Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask you to continue to talk to us. Continue to talk to us about our soul life, that bit of us that is still stained and damaged, all that is growing and that's wonderful. Lord, talk to us about that. Now keep in our minds the fact that we are cloaked and clothed in the righteousness of the King of Glory.